One of the parts about being a therapist that I'm most grateful for is the opportunity that I get on a daily basis for people to share their stories with me. I feel so privileged to be able to witness others' journeys and I find it such a meaningful interaction where we get to think about their experiences together and try to gain better understanding while at the same time learning so much about life as a human and about myself. My hope with this podcast is to be able to share a glimpse of that with you the listeners by sharing these once-off discussions between me and a random stranger who I have not seen for individual therapy before. The goal is not to have a super once-off session where we identify solutions to all of their problems and we fix everything magically in an hour, but it's rather to bounce off ideas and for me to try and help them to identify how and where to begin or to continue with their own mental health journey. These recordings will be shared anonymously and any identifying details regarding the client has been removed. I hope that this helps you in some way. I had a look at your application form just before we started and there were three things that stood out to me that you mentioned there that you would want to discuss. And the first thing was managing stress and well-being as being a therapist yourself and then secondly being present with your family on a day-to-day basis and maybe the toll that it takes as a therapist to be able to do this and then asking for help as a therapist and and all three of these things are really linked Um, but I would like to kind of just get an idea from you what has been your experience and, and maybe what what's bringing those things to the forefront for you. Okay, so I think one thing that I'm trying to explore as a therapist that has really impacted, I think, my presence with my family has been trying to detach from work at the end of the day so that, I mean, being an educational psychologist as well as a psychotherapist with children, it's trying to not keep so many children in mind and they not be unfair to my own children at home. and so. And not all cases are going to be resolved at the end of the day. They are going to be long-term. So I'm, I've been trying to be in a state of trying to find coping mechanisms whereby to just clear my mind before going home so that I can be present. For example, I'm not a psychologist at home. So if I'm going to play with my child, that is just play. Um, I can't be looking for anything or be biased towards anything. The same thing is like, going to a school meeting or a school concert I'm present as my child's parent I'm not there to um you know okay what is the theory behind my child's development what am I looking for mm. that's really what and what I tended to find was is that I'm robbing myself of my child's time and our bond if I kept on thinking about that and not being aware of actually detaching from other children, for example, or clients I would see in the therapy space as well as the educational psychology space. Are you finding that uh, a lot of your clients maybe almost remind you of things that that you see with your own kids or that there's like links that's that's there that's maybe difficult to ignore at times? Um. 
that's why I think at this stage of my life, I really do have a preference and specialize in working with adolescents mm. because my children, um, you know, they're six and under. So I get working. That's why I think before I had a lot of supervision and a lot of guidance with regards to working with kids under six because mm. I, as a parent, am learning new things because I'm at that stage, mm. you know, and learning all those stuff. Yeah. And I think that probably, especially with kids, it's such an important thing that you that you are very aware of where your kids are and then the age of the clients that you're taking on. Um, because I can just imagine that even it's difficult to almost not bring in your own experiences with, like if, if kids are a similar age, you are going through maybe some of the same struggles. And of course, your clients are maybe going through more intense things. Um, and that's why they, they're they seeking uh, therapy. But I can imagine that there's a lot of your own experience that you'll reflect on. And that could really probably also be useful, but could be quite exhausting. And and I think it's so interesting what you said. Um, it made me think about like, you know, the, the projective drawings that psychologists do where it's like draw a person or draw a tree. I can imagine then almost when your kid's drawing a picture, you're going, let me look at what is this potentially saying? It's so difficult to just switch off that therapist part that's looking at all of the symbolism and what their play means and how we can use that. No, of course, yes. Um, and again, it's just, you see, it's been present with that. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I say, I think that if I, did, if I didn't become aware of that and being present of that, it would impact sort of my bond and connection with my own child mm. um and that's why I had to really sort of explore and that's why I found at the same time I think personal therapy was great as a tool because that sort of was a space to sort of separate everything and sort of be like okay but this is my stuff this is not my children's stuff you know um this is my triggers and they would innocently you know trigger something in me that you know I'd have to deal with so it can it can be quite a loop and a half to actually get stuck in. Mm-hmm. I can also understand that working with children, I don't work with children myself. Um, I've had very little experience and, and that was something that was quite taxing. So I, I can, I, I'm wondering if it was the same for you or is the same for you where kids require a lot of attention in therapy. Not that adults wouldn't, for example, but it's like you need to really, you're looking at everything that they do and you're interpreting that and you're using that as information. It's not just a simple conversation that you're having either. No, it isn't. And it's also, again, you see, it's a different mindfulness space, a different present space, and obviously different from a space um, present with your own child. Another thing that I found a bit taxing was, um, and it's good, I guess it's because it's a challenge as well, is just working with parents. You can't mm. over-identify with parents, especially, and that's what I found very difficult and challenging at times is working with parents who are parenting children the same age as my children, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because it would often come up, uh, you know, do you have children this age? Oh, is this phase like this for you? And 
you kind of have to make the separation and mm. sort of not it's not get into that lock battle of oh we we're going through the same struggles because you are a professional in that space and you are guiding in that space mm. was it difficult for you to come to the decision that you're not going to be seeing younger kids anymore like tell me a bit about how that process looked like for you because i i think that that could be really challenging it could so i didn't want to completely cut it off but what i did want to do was i wanted to look for more professional training in that sense and if i was going to do it it would be cases that would be really strictly under supervision and not when i would have a high case load if i was going to enter into it i wasn't going to have a high case load if i had a high case load it would be with teens and not so much um that sort of group and i mean because when i sort of found this conflict i mean supervisors would say to me okay look the years where you should acknowledge um you've been biased or you've been too direct with the child that is why their play is guarded for example mm-hmm. when entering into sessions or this is why you seeming to be impatient in the setting i mean still now i can't pick as an educational psychologist with assessments for children age 6 for example and mm. um that sort of thing but therapy i had to sort of take a break away from there because of my kids and the ages that they are in and sort of the fa- the developmental phases that they were going through and what that meant for them as children and what that meant for me in our sort of parent child relationship but so i'm i'm hearing almost to two processes that that you were aware of and the one is how the therapy that you had with younger kids kind of how that impacted your your relationship with your kids or just how um present you are in that interaction but then at the same time maybe also how it impacted how you showed up in the therapy room pretty much yes and again it's a sort of a learning curve of separating home from profession basically mm. Mm. um i think it was and i'm glad at a stage because it was really at a stage where i mean i had continuous profession uh, continuous supervision when i did psychotherapy i mean i still do mm. and it was picked up in those cases as i went through them and especially when the process was guarded for the child and myself mm. uh, i think when and i guess my own therapy or my in my own supervision process i think there will be that defining moment where i'll feel like okay maybe i can return and i can mm-hmm. take on more children because i mean it's definitely a area to um work through and to go through again uh but really i think it's still a growth stage and i think there's still a lot of things for me to reflect on mm-hmm. and sort of effectively make that separation leaving the home getting into the therapy space leaving the therapy space coming home mm-hmm. and sort of you know being aware of the coping mechanisms not just exploring the coping mechanisms i think for now i'm just in a space of okay this seems to be working for me okay but i'm not too much relying on this because i want to explore some other stuff that i think are working for me mm-hmm. i do think and and that's why i asked you earlier if it was something that was kind of a bit of a, a internal struggle but i think what i'm hearing is it it was a process of really reflecting and I think it's just highlighting how important supervision and your own therapy space is to help you to identify these things. But 
I think it's a really, really important step for psychologists to be able to take and say, actually, I'm not going to be seeing whether it's the specific kind of problem or the specific kind of group or um, kind of client age. There's there's almost this notion also that we need to just be able to help everyone. And I think that's often a very difficult space to then get to, to say, it's okay. And I give myself that permission that I don't need to be doing this right now. It's not saying anything about the kind of therapist that I am. Hmm. No, definitely. And it's, and it's, it's again, also working through the process of accepting that Mm. and then sort of working through that acceptance. Um, and, I mean, I'd also have clients in the past who I've seen kids before, you know, and they would say, but you could just try. And I'm like, no, I'm going to refer you to somebody else who is mm. going to work actively with you. I mean, just alone, I think also what showed up for me as well is just um, at that age as well, because working in the South African context, the, the amount of trauma cases that were coming in, mm. I mean, when I experienced it with um, under six that was taxing not just alone the child developmental phase, but the traumas that were coming from home. You yeah. know, what they what what could they trigger for me and what could they trigger about just in general on thoughts about children mm. and you know what you would advocate for for children. Um yeah. Mm-hmm. I think in our context in South Africa, as you say, trauma is such a part of our lives and and I think we we do get desensitized to a, a large extent in our day-to-day living but doing therapy as a whole other process of really seeing the impact and almost living that with with your client in that moment mm. tell me a bit about the coping mechanisms that you've realized are useful or that helps you to actually just decompress and and get into a different mind space when you do get back to your family? Mm. So one, I I think I really just like being in a quiet corner and I like to pray a lot, definitely. Uh, I do that quite a bit. Mm. Or I definitely memorize scripture from the Bible for me. Um, and also like just mindfulness activity. I mean, I love the whole color by number thing because I'm never going to finish it, but <laughs> there's just nothing going on in my mind. And it's the mm. picture is for nobody. There's no pressure for that. It's not going to be graded, discussed. <laughs> it's really just to let go. And also I value just alone time, whether mm. it just be grabbing a cup of coffee and sitting on a bench. Mm. just staring at like a lake Mm. that or walking through an empty park that's well few people because I mean that would be dangerous but just that sort of alone Mm. space really Mm. is and just and to sort of interrupt I, I had I had to become aware of interrupting the busyness of every single week because it can just be on like autopilot you know yes and there has to be a sort of cut on that like weekends I had to sort of just lock everything up, for example. And sometimes I had to, for example, it may sound silly, I had to hide my phone, I think, Mm. just for the weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to say to my husband, listen, if someone is going to contact me, I've just told them to contact me through your phone for the weekend if they are looking for me, you Mm -hmm. know. 
so that I don't have that temptation of wanting to look back. And because I think we also fall into that trap of, okay, I'll just look at this request and I'll, I'll practically do it on Monday. But it's sitting in a box in our minds and it's mm-hmm. robbing of the present. So I had to mm-hmm. take practical steps besides stuff I was doing for my mind. There were practical things I had to do that were not just going to, it's going to force me in a good way to be present with mm-hmm. my family, with my children. I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with like, I mean, social media as well. Another mm-hmm. reason why I had to lock my sort of um, phone away because posts on TikTok, new research areas. Oh, look at this, you know, mm-hmm. like in child development. Oh, look, there's a play therapy course coming. Up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I really, the, those are one of the things I had to sort of just, or oh, one of the steps I took. I think as you were speaking, I was busy thinking about um, social media specifically where like all of the content that you tend to consume as a psychologist is about therapy. And even the other day I read a book and I I made an effort to buy a book that's just like a fiction book. It ended up being a, a kind of psychological thing in any case without me realizing, but it was so refreshing for me to just read something that's not related to what people experience or how you can help them or as you say a course or some information because I can imagine that that's probably the majority of what other therapists consume no it pretty much is Mm. and it's just I mean there's there's such interesting stuff on TikTok with trauma um, approaches as well and like how to decompress as well and what mechanisms to try where I've just found that like just switching off and sometimes you don't have to be busy in the present. You mm. just got to take what's in in the present. That's what I found with my family. Um, I always used to think that I needed to be doing something. I needed to be saying something. I just actually needed to be in that moment. That's all. Mm. I, my daughter just needed me to, to show up, mm. to sit, and to focus on her. Or, and I didn't need to do anything. I really didn't actually practically need to do anything. Wonder if if you feel like as a therapist, you're you are even so much more aware of the importance of you being present with your kids. Yes, they can it's be like that. this vicious cycle. Cycle, yes, definitely. Because then you also worry about okay, but if I'm not present, what could impact them? Mm. Definitely. Mm. I think it's it's really important to explore um just back to the the coping mechanisms. I think it's really important to explore just different things and and I guess at different times you'll need different coping mechanisms as well. Um but the other day a while back we had a, a little yoga retreat for therapists specifically and um in the that session we all sat and discussed like we had some yoga and stuff and afterwards we had this discussion around how people decompress and how you kind of end off your day and I know for me personally I literally have my last client and I need to pack up my laptop and run out of the office literally two minutes after we ended because like otherwise the traffic's too hectic and I won't make it home to get my child from from daycare so um and that's actually the the worst thing to be doing and we discussed that and and a lot of people spoke about just like sitting in their office maybe for half an hour afterwards having a cup of coffee um 
having some kind of ritual that they do, um, whether that's just like spraying something in your room to make it feel fresh and um, good again after the whole day. One one psychologist said she she um, gets those bubbles that you you buy for kids, and she just sits in her office and she blows bubbles because it makes her feel good. And I thought that that's really like that's so creative and so lovely. But I think we we really need to put in a lot of intention and effort with how you wrap up each day and almost how you just let go and relax after everything that you have to hold on to. Mm. And it's quite an interesting thought. I really haven't really thought of it that way. Mm. Just in terms of, I mean, because I think in terms of more like, okay, weekly, or what it was weekly, like, whereas maybe you'd be in a healthier state mentally, I think, if you let go of each day intentionally, mm. then to sort of carry everything from Monday to Tuesday <laughs> yes. to Wednesday. Mm. Sure. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's it's not always possible necessarily. Um, I think that life makes it a bit more tricky, but I think it is useful if you have some space and and maybe some days that might be 10 minutes and other days that might be half an hour that you're able to kind of just almost ask yourself what state is this day leaving me in mm. and and what what could be useful for me to leave some of that behind I think there's this this idea also of you leave you need to leave everything at the office and that doesn't necessarily always happen mm. I like the whole idea of intentionally letting go of the day, mm. you know, and I think what we don't talk about sometimes or what doesn't come through, which I think you sort of touched on as well, is in terms of, okay, but what happens if we don't intentionally let go of the day? Mm. You will you will work late some days. You will write mm. a progress note at like 11 in the evening. Mm. And how do we, and is that going to be a cycle for us? Or is it going to just be on those days when we work late and becoming aware of those practices? Mm. And maybe it's not going to, you know, resolve itself as quickly as we want it to, but it would be over time. But then taking accountability for it, you know, like, okay, I'm going to intentionally let go of this day. I've done this. Okay. But it's not going to happen all the time, but I'm into the practice and I'm aware of it. Mm. Mm, yeah definitely mm. tell me a bit about what role your um your own therapy has played for you in this process is that something that you do consistently still um so it really depends i mean given the time with my own children and my family uh no, but I definitely would, I mean, because right now my load is more on educational assessments instead of therapy. Okay. Mm. When I am in a therapy space then, and because I think just given that I only qualified in 2020, um, and I feel like there's a lot that I have to learn as a psychotherapist, um, mm. I definitely would be more in supervision as well as my own personal therapy. Um, I think what changed me, but as well, in addition to individual psychotherapy, was attending couples counseling. Mm -hmm. That both of those processes, as much as they were opening, they it was a bit difficult 
as well because it was now two therapy processes that I had to go mm-hmm. through. Um, individual psychotherapy was is very helpful in a sense whereby, I mean, because I could see it from my master's year already. I was already working through, like, I could open up and sort of look at childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. And I could, I, I didn't blame things in the past anymore. Mm-hmm. And if I made mistakes or if I was triggered, I could learn to deal with those triggers. There was basic ways of dealing with those triggers and learning to appropriately have those discussions um, with my therapist and, for example, my family members. Mm. Um, And again, what therapy brings and what I really, really value from therapy and I just want it all the time is it sharpens that self-awareness. Mm. able to sort of come out of a session and be like okay I think I did this and I feel like I could have done this I'm going to try this in the next session for example Mm. it definitely and something that really interests me that I kind of saw from the therapy relationship is this whole regulating aspect Mm. when I'm in personal therapy I'm being regulated and Mm. then I play one of those roles in the therapy rooms because my clients or children would be arriving emotionally dysregulated and I would have to be regulated. And that's what I received from personal psychotherapy. It's Mm. just that building up up that regulation and serving that regulating role for children. Mm. And we we don't realize, like, I think, especially working with kids, you are very much it's like being a parent where when you are a parent you need to be a container for your child and you need to feel regulated for the child to feel regulated and of course when it's your own child I think there's so much more that that you do experience because you you feel that pressure that I need to show up and I need to handle the situation but you're doing that on a constant basis daily for so many different kids where you need to be creating that safe space, maintain the boundaries, keep them safe, but make space for the emotions. Like that's really a lot to be doing for one person. Mm. No, it really is. Mm. Um, But again, I think, and I think it just becomes, it will be so exhausting and emotionally exhausting and that would increase if you are not working on the awareness of it and seeing mm. how it could be. And mm. again, like accepting the, how some children or some teens in therapy could remind you of people from your past or people who would trigger you or of you, a version of yourself that you have had to deal with in psychotherapy. Yeah. And just bring it up. <laughs> mm. I think that's so beautiful what you're saying. Um it it really describes it so nicely that you actually meet different versions of yourself in your clients that you've had to deal with before or that you maybe still sometimes need to deal with and that you didn't know existed. And I think that's why it's so important for therapists to go for their own therapy. And and I think it's really sometimes difficult for, for psychologists to, or any mental health care professionals to prioritize that but I think it's it's not about always being in therapy, but having a consistent space that you know you can go back to when you need to, because you you never know. It's a lucky packet what walks through the door. You have no idea what's going to happen in that session 
for you and for your clients? No, definitely, of course. And again, it's a, that's why, and I think it just also then goes back to the present, you know, because if you are not present, for example, for what is happening in your home environment and it could be brought up through the room and mm. that it can be a very a sticky and a messy situation, I think, to deal with. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Do you find that this is something that you can speak to your colleagues about? Do you have access to to that kind of support system? Well, at the moment, I think most of my colleagues are, again, educational psychologists are really in an assessment space. So I think it mm. can be difficult to, mm. um, this I think would be more sort of in a interdisciplinary space maybe with counseling clinical um sort of psychologists and that's what I love about um psychotherapy workshops because mm. in that sort of space we are able to sort of really have these types of discussions mm. um and I think those are the spaces I try to seek and that's why I try to also look um I look for forums and sort of spaces like that and also again that's what attracted me to your topic at first, because mm. I'm just like, okay, um, I have not seen sort of these sort of questions or topics around, okay, but how does, what do therapists think about themselves, for example, when they ask for help? When do they ask for help? What does that look like? Mm. Um, and they kind of have to know themselves how to ask for help. I don't, I mean, I don't know how it is for other therapists, but I know within my own sort of family and circle, they they don't know when to be like oh okay she's reaching breaking point or mm. oh I think it's time out you know I need to sort of sort of look at that and I take that from experience myself and what I'm going through. I think maybe that's such an important thing to also just touch on is the role that you take on in your family being a psychotherapist. What have you noticed? How how does the family? dynamic work around that so <laughs> I come from a family and sort of background where is really I mean they don't really access psychotherapy mm. I mean they make the joke of I must just look in the mirror and talk to myself why should I go access services wow. like that's the sort of notion that I'm mm. working with you know mm. uh, because and again I I would tell them like you know, I'm going, I'm today, I'm not going to be around because I really have to go and do a session. And then, it's, and again, I'm, we're still in the age and I feel era of breaking the stigma anyway. Mm. Um, mm. But it's really, I think what I have to know, what I notice, I mean, they would also look at me and they'd be like, you're overthinking something. Mm. Oh, are you going to? And again, because we have pop psychologies in movies so much, they really mm. think that we are doing what the movies are doing, and it's really not that at all. Like yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not there. I'm not doing that. I'm not. Mm. They're like you would look at them and they'll say, "Oh, are you diagnosing me? Oh, do you think I have some trauma?" And I'm like, "No, that's not what's going on. Mm. Um, I just need to be." I think what they also seem to not really get quite yet is, "What do you mean by quiet space? How can you mm. sit by yourself and just think about it?" Um, for me, you, I mean, as a psychotherapist, you learn the value in reflection. Mm. You need to sit with your thoughts and be safe with your thoughts and be able to process them on your own. Sometimes mm. you can get some help, yes, but 
I think that's a practice that we learn over the years, learning mm-hmm. to be reflective, um, especially when in conflict situations or when someone has made you angry and in the immediate moment, you're not understanding why they made you angry. Why did you snap like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas other people can get maybe over that quickly. I don't think, you know, for me, I'd have to take a step back and be like, just reflection time or how you exit conversations, for example, or exit interactions, for example. Mm. I think it, it can affect relationships in so many different ways and, and not just with your, your spouse, but with family and friends. Um, I'm thinking of, of so many things as you're speaking where I think it's often really overlooked how isolating and really lonely the space can be of being a therapist. And and of course, I think it's about, again, being intentional about maintaining connections with, with the people around you and really putting in the effort to maintain those relationships and to share of yourself as well. But I think you're so used to, number one, having to listen to people and not necessarily share about yourself. So I think for therapists, it's quite challenging almost then going back to your day-to-day where, oh, this is a reciprocal conversation where I also share a bit of myself. It's not just me listening to the other person. But then there's all of these assumptions that that people in your life can have around, oh, but you're just analyzing me or you're trying to now be the therapist, stop being the therapist, when maybe you're just really trying to communicate or you're trying to really understand Um or people just expecting that you have it figure out, figured out because you, as you say, just talk to yourself in the mirror. You you would know what to do or you you need to do this for yourself. So there's almost this pressure that you you shouldn't struggle with anxiety or depression or whatever it is um, just with life sometimes because this is what you do. No, it's fair. Yes, no, of course. Mm. It really is. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no. Tell me a bit about the process of asking help and what that has been like for you. So I think, again, because I'm also involved in church communities as well, um, and, again, because I ha- I make an effort to sort of maintain sort of friendships and um connections with people and I think also recent I mean also within my friendships I mean at a sort of bible study group we've had like accountability partners and mm-hmm. one who you could just check up or check in with and they could sort of see and surprisingly they would know you a bit better than the mom version or the wife version that they would see mm-hmm. at home and it's really through that sort of process like you know I don't know what help it is you need, but I think you really maybe need to go for help, you know, Mm. and being willing. I think for me, it's always just the start. You know, Mm. I always think if I just start, that's all I really need to do right now. I don't need to know how far this is going to go. I just need to start. Same thing with supervision. Supervision is the real area where I learn. And it's like you come to this place of, okay, I need help here. If I Mm. want to grow, kind of, and the path to growth, yes, it's going to stretch, but it needs to start with, I need help here. Mm. And again, 
once again, you need to be present for the help. You need to play your part in the help. You need to put effort into that sort of help mm. that you're looking for. Mm. Um, and again, so with definitely within friendships that you maintain and you put an effort into, those people will definitely see when you're off and they kind of can cue if you haven't already asked for help then already. And definitely in the supervisor sort of relationship and mm. where to get and then again, within the the one of the great aspects of the supervisor relationship is that accountability. Because come your next session, they're going to be like, "What did you do? Did yeah. you go? Mm. Uh, can we chat about how did it feel to go for that help?" And mm. so, mm. yeah, I think a part of that also that I'm just thinking of is sometimes asking for help is not like it can be in the form of reaching out, as you're saying, but. Sometimes the asking for help might also just be to notice when you are really needing a break. And and I've noticed with a lot of the psychologists that I know and myself that it's really hard to, if if you are going through something personally, to actually allow yourself to say, maybe I need to cancel my sessions tomorrow. And of course, you're not going to do that every week and just like late notice on the last minute cancel your sessions but it because it will always feel like but these people need my help and they are relying on this and I need to just push myself even more but sometimes really it's it's so important to just be able to say I'm not going to be able to be a good therapist if I have these sessions and so I need to inconvenience other people and I need to get the help or the space that that I need to be able to get to a, a space where I can show up for them again. No, definitely. Um, I think before when I was working in the school environment full time, um, and again we had like trauma cases. Mm-hmm. Um, on specific days, if I just had, if I had something for the morning, <laughs> I would always say to my principal, "I'm like, listen, I am going to go get a cheeseburger from McDonald's." Okay, I don't have any. I mean, because I would know that I don't have sessions for the day because they would actually all be their classes. And I'm like, after second break, I'm going to go get a cheeseburger from McDonald's and we are going to try again tomorrow. That is Mm -hmm. what we're going to do. But like you say, it's again, but I think it also dips into that guilt of, Mm. you know, oh, I can't let go of, you know, you know, other struggles. And also just like, okay, if I take this day off or if I, if I plan a day where I'm going to not take on cases, you know, um, do I deserve more than my clients, for example? And I, who am I to put other people's struggles aside just for some time, you know? Mm. And it's working through that guilt as well. But as you say, it's been another push of, but I'm not going to then show up as the best version of myself for that client. Mm. And that's really it. Mm-hmm. But it's also then being aware of and constantly, and this is not a pride or ego thing at all, but what does that best version of me look like? How do I maintain mm-hmm. that best version? Am I keeping to that? Mm-hmm. I wanna, I'm, I'm curious to maybe just ask you also about your perspective, or not your perspective, your, um, your personal experience of the reasoning behind becoming a therapist. What led to you lining up in this profession Mm. Um, so I really enjoy connecting with people quite a lot Mm. and 
I enjoy trying to understand the meaning behind people's experiences mm. um, and what people make of their experiences. What did, what, what, and how did specific incidents in people's life shape them? Mm. And how did, how did they also like sort of let go of, for me, how I also ended up or what motivated me to come into this profession is just being aware of how different mindsets dictate people's behaviors and ways of living. Mm. What sort of, you know, I mean, an interesting one, I mean, my thesis really looked at, it really tried to look at this relationship between parent behaviors and the impact on independence and how parenting looks in different cultures and the mindset behind that parenting and what it encouraged and how people were going to let go of parenting from their past and how they were going to take on new parenting sort of approaches. So that's really a sort of my connection to people and really sort of trying to understand the meaning behind their narratives or their stories. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that's really how I ended up in this space. Do you feel like your your experience with your own parents played a role in that interest in parenting and um different experiences that people have? Uh definitely. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think definitely um my looking at my own family and and, and looking at I mean, I looked on both sides before. I, that's where I drew inspiration, I think, from the paper to try and look at how parenting in my mom and my dad's side just looked very different and what inspired that and how that influenced identity during the adolescent years as well as the emerging adulthood years and mm-hmm. what that so that sort of relationship. Because, um, I mean, I think, again, it's it's sorry, I'm like tracking off here, but it's just influencing mm-hmm. all looking at how one's identity through those developmental phases get defined or linked to a particular parenting approach. Mm-hmm. I think the the beauty of therapy is there's this this chapter, and I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, The Gift of Therapy. Of mm-hmm. It's written by Owen Yalom. Have you read it? No, but I definitely would like to look it up. Have a look. Um it's one of the the best books that I've ever read. Um, and I've really struggled to read books since <laughs> uh, since I've been been in private practice. I think my mind's just too full of of other people's stories. But that book I finished in a day because it's really just so um relatable and useful. So it's a, it's highly recommended for other therapists. But one of the chapters is um that we are fellow travelers with our clients. And basically what that chapter is about is that as much as therapy is for the client, it's also something that that the therapist experiences. And you are learning as much about yourself or about your own process or whatever it is that you are needing. You also get that from, from therapy. And so we get the right kinds of clients for the things that we need at times and and that happens without us having it planned or knowing necessarily but therapy is definitely something that a therapist also gains from and and not just your clients no of course and Mm -hmm. again once again I think the more of the learning or how you could see how the learning takes place is (laughs) again when you get your feedback and supervision 
Mm. Definitely. Mm. Mm. Is there any uh, anything else on your mind that you wanted to to touch on or just share your thoughts? Um, share maybe what you would want to say to other therapists, especially maybe people just starting off from your own experiences before we end off. Uh, I think definitely, I think there's just a need for a forum for therapists to really look at, you know, that looks at this is how you can get help, you know, or this is the sign of therapist burnout. And you could do a variety of videos on there. I haven't seen, like, I mean, if we're looking, if we are in the social media age, like this is what we should be sort of looking at, like, videos around okay this is what therapy burnout looks like um um and then to sort of have maybe a forum that's anonymous for other th for all therapists to sort of post on there such as you know this tip worked for me when I felt burnout or this and it could sort of be like a closed group to sort of and then all members anonymously can contribute to that you know it's sort of a group where you don't have to place any emphasis on identification but it's mainly for the purposes of This is how to get help, you know, because those stuff, those topics are not out there. You're always trying to see, I mean, I always see out there, okay, what can medical professionals do when they are burnt out? What dentists and doctors can do? But what does the psychotherapist do? Like a tricky thing for me that I marvel at or try to look at is, and I don't want to say it's, it's, there's no discrimination towards this, is How does the psychotherapist deal with grief, for example? Mm. You know, they 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 work with this on a daily basis, but what do they do when it hits them? What do they do when it, you know, comes what it what happens when they lose a loved one? Or, you know, how do they and when do they ask help, for example, in that process? So I my wish is that therapists not would come forward in a sense. that they could just give ideas of how they got through burnout, for example, so that they can help other colleagues who are maybe going through burnout or how to manage stress and anxiety or how to balance work and their children and family at home. Or what does it mean to be present for them? Mm. Mm. Or like I'm I'm thinking and, and I'm making notes as you are saying these things and, and hopefully we can try and kind of find ways to address this in, in different ways because I think what you're saying is really powerful and really important. Um but I'm thinking like therapists going through their own traumas, maybe um like being in an accident or like having a miscarriage or um going through a divorce and and your clients are not obviously aware and you can't necessarily while you are going through that take off six months of of practice and how how you need to find ways to cope with that or um how you need to adjust your practice during that period for you to be able to actually still be present in the therapy room but also protect yourself emotionally to not be like just sitting with all of this with your own stuff and your client stuff No, of course. mm. I really, I mean, that's what I, that's what I definitely, I'm so thankful that I actually had this sort of discussion with you because that's really what I took out of today is like, where are these forums? When will they be created? When will that type of content come across my screen? 
for example, because we are kind of, I think from my experience, we just stuck at this gauge of, okay, we need to go to individual psychotherapy. Yeah. Or mm. we need to go to supervision mm. or we need to find a trusted colleague. It's not just there. And I think you would be more open to it if it was anonymous and it just came across your social media page. Yes. Mm. Mm. Definitely. That's, I think it's a very good idea. And and I'll definitely be thinking about how and where there might be room to do something like that. Um, but but if you also find something, please share that with me because I think no, definitely there's so many so many therapists. Um, but I think that that's something to to really think about. Um, especially at being anonymous, I think that a lot of therapists, I myself, I've I've learned to be much more open and honest about the difficulties that I experience, but I, I've always almost feared, um, but other therapists are going to think I'm like bipolar if they hear that I'm doing these things or what are they going to think about me experiencing, um, these kind of feelings maybe around a a therapy process or what will they think about me struggling with this it should be something that's quite um, easy to do or did I now break like an ethical boundary that's off limits there's so many things that you really just question yeah so I mean it's scary to it's scary to go into the whole thing of incompetency as well Mm. it's very hard like to get there oh I better not share this maybe because then they're going to be like oh maybe you need to actually check yourself out and your standards so uh, Yeah. yeah 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 this discussion reminded me of the unique experience of being a therapist I'm so grateful for my guest for sharing some of her thoughts and her experience with having to get to the difficult decision of changing her practice as a psychologist for her own mental health and well-being. Asking for help when you are the one usually offering the help can be such a difficult thing to do. Psychologists often suffer in silence because your problems might always seem minute in the greater scheme of things. Practicing as a psychologist for most practitioners can be extremely isolating and lonely. If anything, this discussion really reminded me how important it is to just talk. Talk to your colleagues about the things that you struggle with, things that you find triggering, mistakes that you made with clients, and uncomfortable experiences in the therapy room. Go for therapy and go for supervision. These spaces exist for a reason. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds and rate it on whatever platform you are listening on. And be in touch if you would like to be a participant yourself.